Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 136. Today, we're getting spooky once again and talking about a really dark case for Crimetober. We are going to be talking about the Dardeen family massacre. Yes, unsolved to yeah. this day. Yep, unsolved. And one of those where you just don't even have a real inkling of what you think it could be. I mean, it, there's so theories, many possibilities. You can really theorize yourself even. Yeah, it's surprising that this one isn't more well-known, honestly. I mean, yeah. it's really crazy what happens mm -hmm. uh, with this poor family. But Yeah, and the family has been really trying to raise awareness about the case, but a lot of programs and TV shows won't pick it up or you know, documentaries and stuff like that because it's so brutal. It is. It really is. Like, proceed with caution for sure. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN, care of Simply Safe and Honey. So thank you guys for sponsoring the show. Also, I just wanted to mention that this week on the sesh, Janelle and I did a Halloween themed episode. We called it a spooky sesh. And we talked about a bunch of little stories from history that are really scary and dark and freaky stuff that you may not know about. And I think you guys would really like that episode. So I just wanted to mention it and we'll link it in the description box. Yes, link it in the description. It's good. They're like short stories that wouldn't make it on mile higher, but they're still really interesting. Some of mm -hmm. them are about like cryptids. Some of them are true crime. Um, and then also we're doing a giveaway, y'all. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, we are. And a little contest. contest. If you guys want to be a part of a fun Halloween contest, check out our uh, episode on how to enter. Yeah, it'll explain how to enter for the costume contest, the pet contest, mm -hmm. and the pumpkin carving contest. That's right. And there's prizes, people. Go check it out. <laughs> but before we get into the Dardeen case, we do have a few really interesting news stories that came out this week. Some of them are true crime related. One of them is actually related to a case we recently covered, the Scott and Lacey Peterson case. Yeah. Um, some really big news. The court just came out and said they're going to re-examine Scott Peterson's murder convictions because of a juror's answers to their pre-trial questions. So it's pretty crazy. And I know we're going to have a lot of, you know. Yeah, it's very controversial. Case. Different opinions yeah. on this. Yeah. Most people are pretty pissed because like, a lot of people have just assumed that he's definitely guilty and have accepted that, which I understand. Yeah, I understand that too, but I think it's super important that he does get this second look because our, our judicial system is so messed up and you got to remember that like, obviously in some cases you're going to feel a certain type of way, but then there's others out there where, you know, there's clearly miss, you know, misjustice happening as far as, you know, legal proceedings and things like that. And they get totally screwed because of things with the jury and things like that. So I think it's important for all cases. You know, we can't just single this out with Scott Peterson because we don't like Scott Peterson or we think right. he, you know, he killed Lacey. And, uh, you know, either way, I think he needs, you know, this should happen. I mean, our, our judicial system should be working for everybody. Yeah. And if anything, we'll take one more look at it and maybe find out that it was him or we find out that it was someone else. Maybe there's more evidence to look right. at too. You know, it just gets me so much. There's that uh, robbery across the street from her house. If you didn't hear our episode, definitely go listen. And we definitely got some feedback for just even saying that we think yeah. it's a possibility that Scott didn't do it. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm so torn on it because I really don't like Scott and I get the worst vibes from him. And emotionally, I feel like he did it. But logically, I'm like, where is the evidence? You need so much evidence to really prove 100%. And when there's other possibilities that do fit, that you can't rule out, that just gets me, you know? You don't want the wrong person in jail just so that everyone can feel good at the end of the day. Exactly, exactly. We got to take the emotions out of it. 
this is somebody's life that hangs in the balance. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's way too many people who are literally being executed who are innocent or on death row because of the way the legal system works and issues with the juries. I mean, juries, you're, you're dealing with human beings that make mistakes, lie, you know, and vote with emotion. So, and if you didn't know, this is a death penalty case. So it is. It's serious. So apparently the issue is, and the, the reason why the Supreme Court of California is doing this at all is because juror number seven committed prejudicial misconduct by not disclosing her prior involvement with other legal proceedings, including but not limited to being the victim of a crime. So apparently when this juror was four and a half months pregnant back in 2000, she filed a lawsuit against a woman saying she was in fear for her unborn child. And Peterson's lawyers say the juror's answers on her questionnaire were false and that she committed misconduct, which raised the presumption of prejudice. So uh, to me, this makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this wasn't the only issue with the jury on his trial. I mean, it was a real mess. And just unfortunately, the media really blew this one, Mm -hmm. you know, out of proportion to the point where there just was no way possible for him to get a fair trial. Mm hmm. And it happens. And so I I think it's only fair that, you know, if there is enough evidence to prove that he did this, then absolutely, you know, let's prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law. Let's, you know, give him, you know, the justice that. Yeah, it was horrific. But don't we want to be sure? I think with something like this, you need to be sure. Yeah. So I'm glad that they're doing it. And yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, It'll I mean, probably take a long time. So. Death, death sentence already was overturned too. So that was the other thing that happened a little while back. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they're definitely working towards looking at the whole thing. So we'll see if he gets a new trial, complete new trial. All right. This one, you guys tagged me in so many times on Twitter. There has been a man flying in a jetpack spotted over the skies in Los Angeles. I didn't even hear about this. I, I'm surprised too. I usually hear about anything unidentified in the sky. But well, you've been trying to be off social media that's more, true. but I get on Twitter quite a bit and people were tagging us all over the place on this one and saying, maybe it's John Teeter. John, <laughs> John Teeter has returned and he's flying his little time travel machine all over LA. Maybe. I mean, he didn't ever mention a jetpack as far as I know, but you never know. So obviously people are like, what the fuck a jetpack? Are we that far in the future? Jetpacks already out. I feel like we're only a few years away from it, but they're definitely not. Oh, they're here already. They're just not in, you know, affordable for everybody. Oh, Oh, I didn't even know that. People have jetpacks for sure. Absolutely. So who has a jetpack? Can you just own one? Yeah. There's private companies. So can Elon Musk like jetpack around? Like, could he go get (laughs) a coffee on his jetpack? Yeah. yeah. What the fuck? I mean, there's single man helicopters. There's like all sorts of flying contraptions. I know, but jetpack. Like a backpack with fuel in it that makes you fly. Yeah. That exists. Yeah. You haven't seen the guy who has the jetpack? He can like fly around. I've seen that with like water and like smoke or something. Yeah, I've never seen like oh, fire, really? like any flying through the sky. Normally they're connected to like a rope or something. No, no, there's definitely people that have jetpacks. So this uh-huh. could be, I bet. I wonder if we even know who I'm this guy sus. is. <laughs> sounds like I'm sus. <laughs> sounds like they don't even know who this individual is yet. It's he's no, still don't. unidentified. So he's been spotted twice now. Didn't he come really close to an airplane? That's like why the FAA is all, upset yeah. is because he's flying too close to airspace uh, near LAX. Yeah. He got like what? 30, 30 yards, yards, 30 yards away from, from an aircraft? aircraft. Yeah. Apparently the second time, um, I guess the first time was back in September and he was like seven miles away from the aircraft or from the uh, airport. But then I think this recent time he was only 30 yards away from an aircraft. 
Um, what the hell? Kind of, What's and, wrong with him? And he was spotted by two different ones. So, you know, that kind of, you know, strengthens this story, I guess, is 10 minutes later, he was spotted by another uh, airplane. Which is I wonder how high in the sky they're seeing. 3,000 feet. Oh, 3,000. That's pretty high. And then this yeah, first time shit. was uh, 6,000, I think. Or one time it was six, one time it was three. But yeah, I mean, that's still pretty high. That yeah. is. That's like a long, that's a lot of thousands of feet to be up on a little jet pack. Yeah. I flying around I where planes be. fly. Like, what if he gets smacked? Yeah, or he like freaks out a pilot and they crash. Right. Or, or I feel like a billion things could happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's very concerning. I mean, obviously the FAA is concerned. They got the FBI uh, talking to them about this, trying to figure out who this guy is. <laughs> just like, I think people are just will do anything for some attention these days. Really? I, I think it's probably yeah. just somebody who's like, let's see if I can get on, you know, headlines. And well, if he really wants to get attention, you should just go like down in Hollywood Boulevard, but he doesn't want to get caught either too. Yeah, But if you're flying, go fly away and land somewhere and no one ever knows. <laughs> Maybe he built it in his own house. Like what if it's like a homemade jet? That'd be bad. Flying around all yeah. on. I'd Honestly, be impressed. Props. Pretty impressive, right? Props. <laughs> or it's a time traveler with future technology that is flying through our skies. It's or some anti-gravity an craft they've created that <laughs> yeah. he can like, Maybe he disappears into another dimension an and then why would an alien lands? be hanging around LAX though? They're like yeah. so interested in our shitty old airplanes. Like, wow, look at these fucking ancient birds. These guys are Maybe trying in. to catch a celeb. They're like, like fans of the celebrities. <laughs> a celebrity. Yeah. Maybe. I bet this guy's hoping to like get a picture of like some passenger out the window. Like, you know, he's like peeking through. Like, <laughs> like, like flying next yeah. to the plane. Yeah. There's a colonial uh, woman turning butter on the way. I was going to say like in the movie. Who knows? Maybe that's what he's trying to do. Oh my God. Maybe? I mean, people do maybe. insane shit. Like, you know, David Blaine with the balloons yeah. and going up, you know, people are always trying to like push the envelope when it comes to, or it's an heights. alien or it's a time traveler. Or it's a secret spy. Possible. I hope it's an alien. If it's an alien, that'd be. It's about time. It's about time. It's they about come time they jetpacks. arrived. Honestly, yeah, it is. You don't want to hear something. Speaking of aliens, this is just a curious thing I, I came across regarding Doctor Greer, who we've talked about a lot. Oh. Uh, ufologist, spiritual mm -hmm. uh, leader, kind of, and a whole movement, but. He's out in the desert right now doing uh, one of his CE fives, and apparently Demi Lovato is with him. What? what? Demi Lovato's out in the des? Yeah, he, <laughs> I was watching his uh, uh, live stream yesterday, and he said Demi Lovato is going to be on uh, in our CE five because apparently there's another That's badass. Yeah. Demi, yeah, I knew I liked Demi. Her. Hell yeah! Demi Lovato and Steve-O actually. Were, <laughs> Steve O too. Steve O was talking oh. about his new film CE five, uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. On you, like there's a YouTube clip of them that went really viral. So I guess Dr. Greer reached out to them to Demi Lovato and asked them if they want to come on a CE5 with him. So Demi Lovato is yes. going to be on a that's on C5 so cool, with honestly. Damn, we She's wanted all into to do the, that. The we were whole... hoping we might get a chance to do that. They're taking know, Demi invite? Lovato out <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. We well, don't got any chance yeah, now. Now we're screwed. Now we're screwed. You better become a pop star quick. Yeah. Oh, I could sing. Let's put some singles out. <laughs> okay. Hey, everybody thinks I sing the intro song. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so. Oh my god, <laughs> that is true. So the amount of people that say that to us, it's insane. Every day. Someone thinks, someone says that Josh sings the song. But you know what? The other day, someone said that I sing the little hamster voice in the background. It's like, hey. That's exactly what it is, actually. We got, yeah, we, we recorded in the, in the studio and in everything. In the studio, you know, we put the. We worked with an artist. No, yep. I'm just kidding. That's yep. a real song, actually. What is the name of that song? Uh, Monstep. Monstep. It's, it's a copyright free. Or Modestep, sorry. Modestep. Yeah. Stuff. It's always linked below because a lot of people are like, what is this song? It's so good. All of our songs are always linked, guys. If you want to yes. go jam out. Yes. <laughs> and jam listen to, to me sing. 
but anyway, what else so, have we got? Oh, this stories? this is a sad. Oh story. yeah, oh, we're about God. to we're about to take about it down like ten back down. Yeah. Well, it's good preparation for the case today. That's true. That's you true. Bring it back. It's going to get you. pretty dark for the rest of the the rest of this, the episode, guys. Unfortunately. So this one has been going on for a while now. This actually happened last summer. Um, and I remember hearing about it at the time and hearing that there might be charges pressed and, but I didn't even know, I never heard what ended up happening. Did we cover it on the show? I no. feel like we may have covered it on the show. No, we never covered Maybe this Maybe covered a similar one. But yeah. anyway, so back in July of 2019, a man named Sam Aneo was playing with his granddaughter, 18-month-old Chloe Wygand, and it was near an open window on the 11th floor of a of a cruise ship that was docked in Puerto Rico. And this is a Royal Caribbean boat. Yeah. And it was in the kids room. He was just kind of holding her up near the glass and he said that the reason that he did this was because you know when you bring your kids to like an aquarium or an exhibit or somewhere with glass, they like to like put their hands on it or even just a window. Like kids love to do that and like, you know, kind of push glass. that bang on the glass. Yeah. So he lifted her up to do that and this is in the kids room. And the problem was, is he was colorblind and he didn't, or he is colorblind and he didn't realize that the window was actually open. And so when he put her up there, she ended up falling out. Fell out of his hands. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Terrible. Just slipped out. Like she yeah. was, she moved and just slipped right out of his hands. Like complete I mean. accident. Like he just didn't know that the barrier wasn't there. And it's kind of like, what the hell on an 11th floor in a kid's room, why would there be open windows? That's so bizarre. Um, but he, he even described watching her like fall and you know, he is going to forever have that memory ingrained yeah. in his head. Well, he had no idea that the yeah. glass was no. tinted. No. It was tinted. That's why I couldn't see if it was open and there's no warnings apparently on the no. windows that it does open, which so. is ridiculous. If yeah. there's a cruise ship that has a window that's mm -hmm. even slightly, you know, able to open enough for a kid to fall out and it's in the yeah. kid's space, you need to have warnings all over the place right. or just not have windows that open in a kid's space. Yeah. Especially in a kid's place. I don't know why there would be opening windows. There's no reason, no. you know, it, it, really these not. boats are nice. They're air conditioning. Why, right. why do you need to open them? in a kid's space that just does not make any sense. So it's, it's incredibly, incredibly tragic story. Yeah. She fell 150 feet to the dock cause it was docked at the time. Yeah. That's Terrible. Just really, really sad. Um, so the recent update and the reason that we're talking about this is because there have been charges press, which, um, he has been charged with neglectful homicide and he initially pleaded not guilty, but then they worked with him. They needed someone to take responsibility for this little girl's death. But he essentially, he didn't take an actual Alfred plea, but it's pretty much the same thing. If you've ever heard of that, like saying that he's guilty, but there's not going to be a punishment for him. I mean, it was a clear accident. The punishment is he lost his granddaughter and he's going to be traumatized for the rest of his life. Oh my God. So, but they, you know, just for court reasons had to. Yeah. 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 But the real reason we wanted to bring it up is just about the responsibility of the cruise line. Like, don't you think that they should have some responsibility here because the the window was open and there was no warning? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of people are colorblind as well. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, if you have windows like that, that open to potentially a 150 foot drop, there should be some sort of warning there. Something. If a child can go through it, that just seems like a no brainer to me. Like why, why would they even allow that to happen? So absolutely. I, I think that they'll probably 
win this lawsuit, honestly, because yeah, I think they have them. a really strong case here because this should have just never happened. Yeah, we didn't mention that. They did end up suing them, which is good. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see where that goes, but I absolutely think they should be held responsible, and hopefully in the future they'll design, especially windows in kids' areas, a little better. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, it really is. I don't understand why you need windows open on a cruise ship at all. There's decks. There's pl- plenty of places to go get air. I don't see. It's like, so dangerous. I could maybe see if it was like the adult spa or something. And yeah, like, or like a restaurant for adults yeah, only exactly. or something. And it had like very clear like caution, windows open. Yeah. Like caution, don't fall. I don't know. It's just. You'd think they'd cover their bases yeah, with that, especially exactly. in the kids area. Exactly. What the hell? And this isn't some old thing. It's last year. And I'm sure this isn't the first time that something like this has happened, right? Like mm-hmm. cruises can be dangerous, especially oh, yeah. when you're not paying attention and you have kids. Oh, yeah. Like there, things can go wrong. I just feel like this is such a stupid mistake that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, I completely agree. It definitely shouldn't have happened. And hopefully it never happens again. I wonder if uh, Sam's going to face any consequences at all. Like, is he going to no. get fined or anything? He's going back to court in uh, December for his sentencing, but I'm sure it might be like community sir. I mean, who knows? It could They're be. They're not going to punish this They got to give him something. Yeah. Poor guy. They're going to well, give him something. Maybe. Maybe. They wouldn't be doing negligent homicide. They can't. I don't even think they can give him negligent homicide charges if there's no punishment. Like, oh, I think I'm he's sure going to avoid that. jail, but I think there'll probably be a fine or some. Yeah. There's going to be some type of consequence maybe. to it. I mean, why would they want to like hurt their family more though? God, what a tragedy. Really, really sad story. Um, Yeah. Let us know what you guys think about that one though. But before we get into our case on the Dardeen family, we'd like to thank our first sponsors for today. Okay. So the Dardeen family, this case takes place in the mid 1980s in Ina, Illinois, in a small rural community in the southernmost village in Jefferson County. At the start of the decade, the population was only 460 people, and by 1990, it was only 489. That is such a small town. That is. I really cannot imagine that life. I lived in a small town for eight years, and we had like five or 6,000 people, and I felt like that was a tiny-ass little town. I thought it was like 500, honestly. It felt so small. No, 500 is literally uh, a town that only has a few spots that are like open for shopping. Like wow. and a gas station, a grocery store, a bank, Just post imagine office, the gossip, the rumors that go around. In a oh, town like I mean, that. everybody knows everybody. Even in a five thousand person town, everybody knows everybody. I can't even imagine going to a school with that few people. Yeah, their that's school was wild. probably like twenty people. God, Ina, Illinois, man. Yeah, I was gonna say that's honestly wild. My school was like five times as large. Just my freaking high school as their whole yeah. city. <laughs> Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, you went to school at a city. Yeah, honestly, much. your high school though is like the a biggest in the city. state, and it's like a small country. To be <laughs> it real, really is. it is. <laughs> anyway, so it had a general store, it had a bank, a post office, a firehouse, a gas station, but that was about it. And in 1986, Russell Keith Dardine and Ruby Elaine Dardine moved to Ina with their two-year-old son Peter. Both preferred to go by their middle names, Keith and Elaine. So yeah, we'll be referencing them by those names yeah. going forward. Mm-hmm. They're moving from Mount Carmel, Illinois, which is Keith's hometown, and that's about 80 miles away from Ina. Elaine was originally from Albion, Illinois, which is very close to Mount Carmel. Keith was 29 years old, Elaine was 30, and Keith was trained to work as a plant operator at the Rend Lake Water Conservancy District Treatment Plant in nearby Benton. Once he was done training, the couple bought a beige and white mobile home and they rented land just off of Illinois Route 37, a main highway, 
And across from the highway were the Illinois Central Railroad tracks used by the Union Pacific Railroad. So, yeah, I mean, this is like a very typical tiny town in America where Mm -hmm. you've got, you know, major modes of transportation. You've got the, you know, railroad and you also have a major highway. So this is a very transient area. There's people probably just kind of stop, fill up their gas tank and drive Mm -hmm. right through. There's Mm -hmm. not much of a, you know, civilization happening here. It's very, very simple, very, very small. So it's, it's just kind of a, you know, passing through type of place. Mm Mm-hmm. Their landlords, Lloyd and Joanne Settle, lived on farmland next to their mobile home. Elaine found a job working at Staples, the office supply store in Mount Vernon, which is 15 miles north of Ina. And the family belonged to church. They're really, really into their religion. They belonged to a small Baptist church and were very active in the church band. Keith was the lead vocalist and Elaine played the piano and everyone in the congregation was really fond of them. Yeah. Everybody loved them. They said they were like the nicest people. They were modest and they were really devoted to their faith. Like we said, and to their son, they worked hard to save as much money as they could for Peter's college fund, even though he was only a toddler. So to me, I don't know, this kind of struck me as a little weird, because, I mean, they they're definitely don't have a lot of money, but the fact that they're, like, so concerned about Peter's college fund, he's two years old, is just a, I don't know, maybe it's just the times, and that's kind of what I don't think that's did. weird. My college fund was started when I was born. Oh, I had no college funds. So maybe that's <laughs> why I'm biased to this, but. I thought you had a college fund. No, my, I didn't oh, have no, a dime didn't. saved no. for my college. You're right, yeah, so. right. I, I don't know, but I, I feel like people, some people out there understand what I'm saying, that it's a little weird if you're, you know, barely getting, you know, barely paying all your bills and, you know. Oh, to worry about college if you're yeah, barely to be by. like putting as much money as they were into the college fund. Like that was like priority number one versus like. Well, they probably wanted to invest in their kid's future and make sure you had a better life than them. I don't think it's that weird. Sure. Okay. That's fine. Maybe I'm missing something. No, Is that weird? I don't know. I feel like it's a little weird if you're like tight on money, but you're like pouring your money into something that's going to happen and hope like hopefully happen in 18 years. What if he's like, doesn't want to go? I mean, are <laughs> they pouring all of their money in? Are they not eating? So no, they're, I mean- no, they're, no, they're no. Uh, yeah. I guess I'm kind of making it sound like they're like <laughs> <laughs> their entire paychecks are going into his college account. Obviously they lived and everything was fine. Okay. It's just interesting because Keith specifically would resell cheap cans of soda. Like he'd go buy like Kroger soda and then go to the water treatment plant and then resell it for 50 cents. And he took all the profits from his uh, Coke selling business into Peter's college fund. So maybe because he loved his son. Damn, <laughs> yeah, that's what's a with good, the hate? I'm not <laughs> I don't get I'm it. I'm not hating on him. I'm just Well, maybe the kid was like, Daddy, can I have a new pair of socks? Like, no, sons for college only. <laughs> you don't get shit till college. I don't I don't understand. I, I mean, I just I don't know. I, I think it's a little odd that he was so focused on the college fund when your child is two. Like I understand like putting a little bit in there, but he's two years old. You Wait till years. you have a kid and I think you'll think differently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's fair enough. Fair enough. I accept that. So when Elaine found out that she was pregnant again, they were even more focused on saving because now they had two kids that were going to be two college funds. Yeah. Two college funds. Oh, trying to go to like Notre Dame or an Ivy League <laughs> maybe, school. Maybe like, he's like, my kid will be smart. A lot of people are like that. They like are obsessed sure. with making sure their kids are successful and have a better life than them. That's fine. I think it's pretty normal. Okay. Keith sure. was always very protective of his family. He made sure that their doors were locked and he never let strangers into their home. This is something that has been talked about by the family themselves. Like they have given us these details that he was very much worried about. Obviously, I think coming into Ina, he had some idea that 
with a town like this, there's going to be some element of crime there. Uh-huh. And, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, there definitely was a lot of crime uh, in this small town for what it was. And so they were definitely very concerned about that from the beginning. And they made a rule like, do not ever answer the door pretty much like, and mm-hmm. definitely don't let anybody you don't know into our home. Oh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they're definitely very cautious about this. Mm-hmm. Keith told his mother, Joanne Dardine, that he wanted to move back to Mount Carmel where she lived. And Keith's parents were divorced, but his father, Don Dardine, still lived in Mount Carmel as well. I mean, that's his hometown. So I, I think he realized very quickly in Ina that, okay, I'm having another child. I'm going to have new, I'm now going to have two children. So I don't know if I want my kids growing up in this, this little town. So he was starting to make plans to go back to Mount Carmel, which is very important. Keith also told his mother that he regretted moving to Ina and that even if he couldn't find a job in Mount Carmel, he still felt like it was the best place for his family to be and he would move them back anyway. And Joanne thought this was strange because Keith and Elaine were so focused on saving money, the college fund and all of that. So uh, a little bit uh, weird, but Keith told her that he just didn't feel that his family was safe in Ina and he didn't explain exactly why he felt this way. And if there was a specific threat he was worried about, he wasn't saying anything about it to anybody else. So it, it is a little interesting because I, I think there is definitely something that happened uh, after they moved to Ina that really triggered this with him. And he became very much concerned with the safety of his family and wanting to move back to Carmel. Like this is a very strong feeling that he had. Plus moving made sense for the Dardine family because obviously a mobile home, uh, not a lot of room and Uh, A lot of families do live in mobile homes, but for them, they were all sharing one bed and they wanted to be able to provide enough room so that their kids could have their own beds. And so they thought, you know, we've got to move to a bigger place anyway. So why not, you know, move back to Mount Carmel? Let's talk a little bit about the crimes in Jefferson County where Ina, Illinois is. So obviously with a kid on the way, a pregnant wife, Keith was definitely feeling very uneasy about the area that they were living in. And recently, there had been a significant increase in rapes and murders in Jefferson County. Over the past two years, there were 15 murders in the county, including the rape and murder of a 10-year-old girl. And this attack happened nearby in May of 1987, not long after Keith and Elaine moved to Ina. So uh, honestly, that would concern me too. I mean, Mm -hmm. a girl just got brutally murdered, a 10-year-old girl. You're, You're about to have kids, you know, growing up there. That's very, very concerning. And just to put things into perspective, Jefferson County had just 38,577 residents in 1985. So 15 murders in in that population is not not great. The town of Ina also had a very gruesome historical uh, crime history there. There was actually a murder in 1924 that was absolutely brutal. So in 1924, there was the Sweeten family, which was Elsie and Jack Sweeten, and they had been married for 16 years, and they had three young boys. The couple was friends with Reverend Lawrence Height and his wife, Anna, and they had been married for 26 years, and they had two daughters and one son. In July, Jack Sweeten became very ill, and he was diagnosed with food poisoning at the time called tomaine poisoning. Lawrence was at his bedside as Jack died. Lawrence conducted Jack's memorial service, actually, and was seen by a neighbor comforting Elsie. Rumors spread about the Reverend and the beautiful young widow soon after. And a few months later in September, Lawrence's wife, Anna, was diagnosed with food poisoning and she also died. So very strange. People don't normally die from food poisoning. I mean, it does happen, but it's very, very rare. Very. So to have two people die of food poisoning so close together is very suspicious. So the Jefferson County coroner ordered an investigation into this. And a lab report confirmed that Anna had died of arsenic poisoning. 
and arsenic was found in their home, which Lawrence said was used to kill rats. He ended up being arrested and charged with murder soon after this, and with rumors of an affair, authorities ordered that Jack's body be exhumed and tested, and they also found that Jack died of arsenic poisoning as well. Lawrence and Elsie initially denied the murder, saying they had nothing to do with it, as well as their affair, but they eventually confessed to poisoning their spouses. Both of them were found guilty and sent to prison, but Elsie was later acquitted, and this was one of the most famous cases in Ina, Illinois. There was also some very infamous homicides that happened in the 1980s as well, which were actually solved. In one case from 1985, Tom Odell brutally murdered his entire family while taking LSD. He stabbed his father with a butcher knife in their Mount Vernon home and then waited for his mother to get home and stabbed her to death too. As his three siblings returned home, he stabbed two and strangled one. So there's been multiple cases of families being murdered in Jefferson County uh, in the in kind of the around the same time, not exactly, but over the years, there's definitely been other other really brutal murders that have happened. So it didn't take long for Keith to decide that they needed to leave Ina, and they decided to put their mobile home up for sale. And Keith became increasingly paranoid about his family's safety, which is kind of interesting. I feel like he really did have a feeling. There was definitely paranoia there. Like, I think he almost felt like something might happen to them. And like something, maybe he was afraid of someone specifically. Yeah, to to kind of rush putting your home up for sale. Like, we got to move now. Like, he was thinking, we got to get out of here now. Right. There's clearly some type of threat. So one night, a young woman knocked on their door and asked to use their phone. And Keith refused to even let her inside and turned her away. That's how paranoid he was. Keith's friends and family knew how cautious he was of strangers, and they all knew that the family was planning to move because of this. By the fall of 1987, Elaine was about seven and a half months pregnant, and Peter was three years old. Keith and Elaine already picked out baby names, Casey for a girl and Ian for a boy. On November 17th to the 18th, Keith was scheduled for an overnight shift at the water treatment plant, but he never showed up. And this was really unlike him. He would always call if he was sick or if something happened, and his supervisor immediately was worried and called his home. No one answered, though. He continued to call throughout the day with no answer, not from Elaine, not from anyone. So this is when his supervisor decided to call his parents in Mount Carmel, and neither of them had heard from their son or their daughter-in-law and couldn't think of any reason why Keith wouldn't show up for work. That evening, Don Dardine, Keith's father, decided to call the local sheriff's department. They agreed to meet him outside the mobile home and that they would use Don's spare key if they weren't home and no one was answering. So basically just doing a welfare check because obviously it's a little weird. They just want to make sure, you know, everything's Mm -hmm. okay. A police officer met Don at the mobile home at 630. They knocked on the door, but no one answered. They walked around the trailer to the back door and they used a flashlight to look inside. The police officer saw people under blankets in the family bed, but when he knocked, they didn't move. He turned the knob and the door was open and inside he was shocked by what he found. Tucked neatly under the covers were the dead bodies of Elaine Peter, and a tiny infant. Elaine had been gagged and bound with duct tape and may have been initially bound to a chair. Peter was also found bound and gagged. They had been beaten severely with a baseball bat that Keith had bought for Peter for his birthday that year. Elaine and Peter were bludgeoned in the face, in the head, and they both had fractured skulls. And what's so sad is Elaine was well into her third trimester during the attack And she had actually gone into spontaneous labor because she was beaten so badly. That's horrific. I know. God. And investigators actually aren't 
completely sure if it's because of the physical beating or it could have just been the shock of watching her young son be bludgeoned to death. I, I can't even. Yeah. Either that. one is horrible. I yeah. mean, just, and that does happen. It can send your body into shock basically. And you'll just go into labor. Ah, oh, man. So sad. Whoever did this, just no, no soul. Like what's, what's wrong with you? So she did give birth to this baby girl, but they have no idea if she was even alive during the delivery. It could have just naturally happened. But once the baby was out, the killer used the baseball bat to murder the infant as well. Just fucking terrible. And all three members of the family died of blunt force trauma. So, yeah, I mean, let's just let's think about this for a second. Just what's going on, you know, at at the scene. So we've got three people that are dead in bed. They've been tucked in. So they were clearly not beaten under the covers, most likely like they were outside of the bed. Then they were put in the bed. Why? It's very weird. So creepy. I mean, to me, this is very, very personal. Whoever did this. Yes. Like to be very personal with the victims, either maybe knew them even or just really sick individual that enjoyed doing this. And we when we get into more of the detail a little more, you'll see more reasons why we think that. And the fact that they were carefully positioned to look like they were sleeping is very weird too. Like they almost were mm-hmm. doing that to what, to maybe know. knowing the police were going to come to the house and do exactly what they did and hoping that they just see them sleeping and they'd go away. I don't, I don't know. know. Or that's just some weird sick thing they did. I mean, sometimes killers just do things and there's really no explaining why. Yeah. It. It, it's very weird. And I mean, I think part of it has to do with the fact the killer did try to clean up the crime scene as far as the blood goes, but eventually gave up because there was obviously still blood spatter everywhere, blood pools everywhere uh, from the brutal murders that had just taken place. There was also no signs of forced entry and Elaine had not been raped. So these are two huge clues here. We, to me, you know, some people point, is this a robbery, you know, gone wrong or something like Mm -hmm. that or a sexual attack uh, by somebody. And she was not raped as far as we know. And, the door was just open, like as if somebody had come to the door and they had let them in, most likely. So that's kind of weird because we know that Keith doesn't let strangers into the house. So that makes me think that maybe it was someone that he knew. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a strong possibility that it was somebody that they knew. And that he felt comfortable enough to let them in. Well, there's no Keith. That's the thing is in the bed. There's no Keith. Based on the fact that there was no signs of forced entry, the police were quickly able to rule out a robbery because... You know, usually there's forced entry in a robbery, and also they are able to see that clearly through the windows that there was still jewelry, a video camera, VCR, and some money that would have all been taken if this was a robbery. I yeah. mean, nobody robs, you know, breaks into a house, doesn't take anything. No, if especially if you're going to kill robbery. the whole family, you're probably going to take everything you can. That's a yeah. huge risk. But it's interesting that the killer did take the time to try and clean up the blood because um, that shows they weren't in a rush to flee. Like they weren't just boom, boom, boom. And then they would leave. Like they mm-hmm. really knew that they were, you know, nobody was going to come looking like somebody that clearly knew them is what I, I think. I think so too. Based on all this information the police found at the scene. So also, like I said, Keith was nowhere to be found and the family's car a 1981 red Plymouth was gone as well, which is like a little, little hatchback vehicle. Uh, Keith also had a truck, but that was at the house park still. So completely normal there. But the fact that their red Plymouth was gone made police think, okay, Keith must have committed these murders and hopped in the the Plymouth and taken off. So he was suspect number one. And I mean, in a lot of these 
family killings, it's, you know, they usually look at one of the family members first. I mean, usually husband who did it, look at the Chris Watts case. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's usually where investigators go first is they look, they got to look at the uh, husband or father in the and case. And he's gone. So it kind of looks right. He's missing. Almost. So yeah. where the hell he go? Clear. I mean, clearly he's running from this. So the police basically, you know, put out a call looking for this Plymouth vehicle. They start putting roadblocks up to try and attempt to uh, pull pull Keith over if he's out driving the family vehicle. Police officers were dispatched to Mount Carmel to go talk to uh, Keith's family as well, as well as Keith's sister, Anita Dardine Knapp. And she remembered hearing the police tell her that your brother has done this. Where is he? So clearly jumping to conclusions right away. And I mean, uh, it's a very small area. Obviously, a lot of police officers probably didn't have a ton of experience with this. So they're and based on experience as well, they did, you know, have some family murders. So they're like, okay, this is another one of those. It did seem kind of obvious, you know, it did. man kills his family and leaves. That's what it kind of looks like. But early in the next day, the family's car was found covered in blood and parked outside a bank and police station in Benton, Illinois, about 10 miles from the mobile home. What was really weird about this though, is that even though they found the Dardine family's car, there was still no signs of Keith. And there was blood all over the inside of the family car, like I said. So where the fuck is Keith? Like, this makes no sense whatsoever. So investigators are looking all over the place, trying to find Keith. And within 24 hours after the bodies of Elaine Peter and the baby were found, a group of hunters were just passing through a wheat field fairly close to the Dardine home when they came across a body. And this body that they found was Keith's. And it was found about one mile from the mobile home just over the Franklin County line and about 11 miles from where the car was found in the nearby town of Benton. And Keith was definitely not found in good condition whatsoever. He had been shot three times in the front of his skull, in the right side of his face, and through his left cheek. So he wasn't beaten with the baseball bat. He was shot. The killer had also castrated him. That makes me squirm sitting in my chair right now. Me too. And there's, there's apparently a local rumor that after cutting off his penis, this killer put it inside his mouth, oh, the ultimate God. defilement. Like it's, yeah. well, that tells us if that is true, this is 100% a personal case. Yeah. I mean, I think there is some significance to this. I really do. And I don't Me know too. exactly how it's, you know, what it points to, but I think it's definitely very personal. I mean, it's definitely not a robbery. No, you know that who would no. take someone out of the house and. You know, drive them the to fact the- that they took one person out of the house and gave them a completely different treatment than the rest of the family and were bold enough to cut their genital yeah. off. That's such a like personal attack. Such a personal. That's attack. like the lowest of that's so mm-hmm. embarrassing for that person. Like, oh, mm-hmm. and it shows how much anger to want to do that to someone. So, yeah, I think there is something personal going on. I think I mean, what we're coming up with here is this is someone that he knows probably because they came in. You know, he let them into the right, house. No which forced he entry. Would not have done that yeah. if it was a stranger. Right. Um, and then just yeah, how personal it was. The fact that he was separated from his family and his injuries were so much worse. It seems like someone went after him specifically, and the family were kind of casualties to that. Yeah, I agree with that 100. percent I think that the main target was Keith, mm-hmm. and they were just so filled with hate and rage that they decided to kill his family as well. I mean, yeah, and of course that's just our theory. We don't know. This no. is one of those cases where they just have no idea. Really, no. It could have been anything. No, I mean, they don't even really know exactly how this unfolded. Really. They don't no. know who was killed first. No. They don't know if the family 
uh, you know, Elaine and the kids were killed first or if Keith was killed first. But it seems like I could think the leading idea is that Keith was killed first and they went back to the house. Oh, really? And I would have thought it'd be the opposite. That yeah. The killer would maybe want to, if it is something personal about, uh, against Keith, maybe they wanted to hurt them as much as possible and kill his family in front of him and then take him off and yeah. take him elsewhere. That's kind of how I, I feel think, too. But. Yeah. I just, there's a lot of people out there that think that he was first and family was second, mm. but I, I think you're right that I think he probably watched them and then he ended up leaving with this person and then he dropped him and, you know, they believe they killed him in the car. He was murdered inside the Red Plymouth because of the blood spatter everywhere. I mean, it was way too bloody for yeah. nothing to not happen in there. So they believe he was murdered in the vehicle, dropped in the field, and then they drove the vehicle to Benton where they left it hmm. for police to find. And then just whoever was in it disappeared. But even like going through all of that, it just kind of proves that this was like premeditated and like definitely planned out and you know, like a emotional personal attack because mm-hmm. that's a lot of work. That's like yeah. a lot of moving pieces. It's not like you just went into someone's house right. and like blew the, like, you know, killed them all and then left. Like this is very calculated and there's like different pieces. And it, mm-hmm. I feel like they purposely did all this to like confuse investigators. Like I feel like mm-hmm. there was definitely some planning. And it doesn't sure. seem like it was just a random attack no. either. I mean, it had to be personal against this family. Again, we're just speculating. Yeah. There's there's a possibility that it was just some random psycho that picked their house one night and targeted them, but it just doesn't really look like that. It seems like this person might have had experience mm-hmm. in killing. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I, or they I, just had enough anger that anyone Yeah, can but get, I feel you know, like... So you have to have I think when you look at the whole picture here, so not only was the car dropped in another town, which is... I feel like a little bit beyond a normal scope of just a, you know, somebody who gets to a point where they just decide to kill somebody and, you know, they've never done something like this before. This is very methodical and planned out like Janelle was saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the area in Benton where they dropped the vehicle, there's tons of restaurants, gas stations, places to hide, getaway cars could be stashed somewhere. Like they, they knew that they could, if they get to this other town, they could disappear Mm -hmm. and just be gone. And that's exactly what happened. And the fact that, they didn't leave any evidence in the vehicle that could tie somehow tie them back to, you know, whoever this killer was is, is kind of impressive too. Yeah, when you're thinking about how personal of attack this was mm-hmm. and, you know, not only did they probably clean themselves off at the Dardine home before leaving cause it, it's peace blood in, in the, in the Plymouth. So, mm-hmm. you know, after, after taking a baseball bat to, I mean, there's going to be all sorts of stuff all over the place. So how did that not make it into the vehicle? How did, you know, I guess we don't know for sure how this person was very, I believe this person was very, very skilled in committing murders because they tried to clean up the scene. They did a pretty good job. I mean, obviously there's still Mm -hmm. signs of the killing that happened, but the fact they took the the time to do that, they knew they had to cover it up. They can't just leave. Mm -hmm bloody dna everywhere they have to they They knew like what to clean up right Mm -hmm. and then they took keith and were able to do all of this almost flawlessly and then disappear and literally be no trace to them is harder than you think it's harder than you think well maybe it's possible and i now i am thinking about what people were saying that he was killed first maybe he was killed first maybe he met someone outside somewhere in that field maybe they had an agreement maybe he owed someone money maybe there was was more than one what do you mean more more than one one person walked in worked in this oh yeah that's possible but i'm saying there's 
a possibility that Keith left the house and like went up and met with them in his final resting place. Right. Maybe they agreed to meet there and yes. then they went and killed the rest yes. of his family. Now I see what people are saying. Cause that would explain right. the lack of the DNA in the car, but why would Keith's blood be in the car if he was murdered there and just left there? He was clearly transported or, or, or they met in the car. They're like, get in the car, talk in the car, kill in the car, get out of the car, jump, drop them there. I mean, there's a lot of ways it could play out. Shot first in the car and then right. they went and mutilated him. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, again, anything's possible there's, with this yeah. one. There's not Infinite enough information. Possibilities. No. And even after all four bodies were autopsied, they still didn't really have much more information. Mm-hmm. They didn't know which murder happened first. And all they could determine really was that they all likely died within an hour or two of each other based on, you know, probable time of death that that's all they could really gather from the autopsy. I mean, there's probably some more information there, I'm sure. Uh, but the autopsy reports aren't available, but what we do know is that Elaine, Peter and Casey had been dead for about 12 hours when they were found. And Keith had been dead for about 24 to 36 hours when he was found. So he was definitely murdered within 12 hours of his whole family. But the details of the case were very confusing to investigators. I mean, it's kind of confusing us as well. And they had no idea why Keith was killed in a different spot. And like we were saying, maybe he was taken from the mobile home um, or he was abducted while he was out already. Um, And the killer may have left Elaine and Peter tied up while killing Keith and came back to kill them. Bottom line is that the police really had no idea what had happened here. And Mm -hmm. they were very confused by the MO of this killer. They couldn't figure out, you know, what was the motive here and why was Keith killed somewhere else? And why was the car invented? They really had no leads, no idea. And so, you know, they had to start hoping they were going to get some more information. Uh, And their family members were just absolutely shocked. I mean, think about this. This is a religious family, a a young family just starting out their life. They're in the church band. They're liked by everyone. This is a huge shock. They're like, who the hell would want to do this to them? Especially that it's so personal. It looks personal. The family's like, who would have done this? Is this someone in Keith's life that we know? Is it someone in Keith's life that he's hidden Mm. from us? Yeah. That's a possibility. Or is it some random passerby that just saw an opportunity and took it? I mean, they really had no idea. They still didn't even know if it was one or two or maybe more killers. They had no idea whatsoever. News of this violent attack was spreading quickly through their small community, and people became you know, horrified by these gruesome details, hearing what happened, especially to the toddler and the newborn, how they were beaten to death, the rumors of Keith's genitals being found in his mouth. I mean, it's horrific stuff. And the fact that they didn't know who it was, and this is such a small town, it's kind of like, is it someone, is it one of us? Yeah. Or it was like a huge game of among us. Yeah. Insane. Yeah, it really is. You know, you like don't, you're scared to go to sleep at night because you don't know who the person is. Is it someone that is part of the community? Is it someone that's part of the church and is secretly evil? They have no idea. No one. It's a complete mystery, complete mystery. Or some people even speculated that there is some connection to the past crimes that I had mentioned earlier. Like, some, you know, there was a serial killer out there and, you know, they were returning to kill another family. Like maybe that's their thing to murder families. That's what I was going to say. Is there any other patterns in this area that we know of where people have been killed in similar ways where the man was separated from the family? There? No, not specifically. There no. wasn't a specific case that was like the exact same thing. And other normally than there will be some. Yeah. Yeah. Other than there was children being killed. I mean, that's one, one thing there is multiple children killed in this town. Yeah. 
well, that's kind of interesting because there is only 400 something people there. So what are the chances that there's multiple murderers? Right. So maybe there is some pattern there. Maybe there is room for a possibility of a serial killer. And I think it's something that you got to consider with this case. Yeah. So people, like we said, were really freaked out. And after the news broke, there was a huge spike in gun sales. Residents openly carried for protection. I mean, I don't blame them. And kids weren't allowed to go anywhere alone. No one was letting strangers into their home. High school kids who usually waited outside for, you know, sports games and stuff were forced to wait inside until their parents came to pick them up. Yeah, because this is scary, man. Like, yeah. you don't know who's out there or um, who could be next. Like Exactly. There was also a huge rise of sales of security system. The entire community was clearly on edge and had kind of collective PTSD from the experience. A local TV news station, WISL-ABC in Harrisburg, offered $10,000 in reward money for information leading to an arrest. And the Dardeen family added an additional $10,000 on top of that, bringing the total to $20,000. Eventually, it was raised to $30,000 or $68,640 in today's money. The police investigated every tip that they could. Over 30 officers worked on the case full-time and interviewed over 100 people. And even with that reward money and, you know, a few tips coming in, nothing led to anything solid. There was no real leads and they still had no idea. They were all left to speculate. Before we talk about Keith a little bit more and some of the possible suspects in this case, I want to thank our last sponsors for today. So with no leads in this case at all, the police had to consider all potential suspects. And they talked to one neighbor of Keith and Elaine's and they had actually said that Keith and Elaine were raising Labrador retrievers and that they had seen a strange man coming and going from their mobile home more than once. And they're not sure if this was different men or if this was the same guy every time, but they did know that they were, you know, selling dogs. And so there was going to be people who they potentially didn't know coming to the house. And apparently this neighbor actually asked Elaine who this particular person was that was coming to the home. And she said it was a friend of Keith's and then changed the subject. So a lot of people think that this particular person may even have been the killer, or maybe it was just one of Keith's friends. Robert Lewis, the Franklin County coroner believed the community was overreacting though, because most of the previous murders have been solved. So he's like, Oh, we'll solve this one too. No problem. And he considered the Dardeen family murders an isolated incident. He didn't believe there was any connection to past murders And he did believe that the murderer was somebody the family knew personally, but he didn't believe that it was a serial killer. With that being said, let's talk about the two potential suspects the police had over the years. And these two individuals happen to be serial killers, which is very interesting considering this Franklin County coroner statement that he didn't believe it was a serial killer because the only suspects the police really even seriously considered in, in these murders was serial killers. In fact, Cause it was probably just so brutal that, and that goes back to what I'm saying. Like this was very, somebody skilled did this, like somebody who's done this before. I feel like did these murders maybe potentially and someone that look, it looks like someone that enjoys experience yeah. killing and really thinks it out. Yeah. And you killing know? in such a personal way like that. I but mean, if it's a serial killer, then it's not personal. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean like up close is when I say personal, like uh-huh. a lot of serial killers like right. to literally I see what you're saying. make eye contact with their victims. Mm-hmm. So one of these individuals was named Angel Resendez, who was a serial killer suspected of killing up to 23 people. And he went by the alias Rafael Resendez Ramirez, not Richard Ramirez. There's another Ramirez serial killer out there. Yeah, he's creepy. This guy was also known as the railroad killer 
because he traveled the country on freight trains, hopping off randomly at different towns to murder people before hopping back on the train and disappearing. He even sometimes hitched rides with truckers and went wherever they were going and committed murders along the way. And because he would just, you know, commit a murder, then take off, they were impossible to trace. They're just all randomly spread out. So he's very difficult to track down. But the reason why police considered him a suspect is because many of his victims lived near train tracks and the Dardine family's home was right across from train tracks. And his preferred method of killing was beating people to death, just like in the Dardine case. But Raphael ended up being arrested in 1999 and he ended up being you know, charged with these murders. But detectives were unable to find any sort of evidence linking him to the area or to the Dardine murder specifically. The police haven't really released much information around this guy and its connection to the Dardine case. So we don't even really know if this guy even had an alibi for uh, the day of the murders in November. But another serial killer suspect was much more promising in this case, a man named Tommy Lynn Sells. So Tommy Lynn Sells, he actually left home at just 13 years old after he endured consistent sexual abuse throughout his childhood. He later claimed that by 14, he was addicted to killing. And Tommy Lynn Sells spent two decades wandering the United States working as a day laborer and mechanic for traveling carnivals. And as he traveled along, he murdered people randomly. Tommy ended up being caught after a brutal attack on two young girls. Ten-year-old Crystal Searles was staying the night at her friend's house, 13-year-old Kayleen Harris. And this was on New Year's Eve 1999 in Del Rio, Texas. And this is really sad and very scary. But Kayleen was on the bottom bunk and Crystal was on the top bunk in the room. And Crystal woke up when she heard a noise and she saw a man standing in the room. Tommy had climbed through the window. Crystal watched as Tommy slashed Kayleen's throat and she fell to the floor. Tommy turned to leave, but at the last second he spotted Crystal and he calmly walked to the bunk bed and said, move your hands before slashing her throat. Kayleen died, but Crystal survived actually. And based on her description, the police created a composite sketch and were able to track Tommy down and arrest him. Tommy went on to confess to many murders that he committed, including the murder of the Dardine family. When he did, he told police he confessed in order to ease the suffering of families, claiming that he found religion in God. But the more likely scenario is that he was just trying to buy himself more time, especially after he was found guilty and sentenced to death. He was just trying to stay alive longer. He was linked to at least 22 murders, but he confessed to about 70 of them. It's just crazy to me that there's people out there who are literally killing 70 people. Yeah, what the hell? just wild and and how many people who have unsolved cases out there that could be serial killer victims that's that's really scary to think about too yeah that is after tommy lincells confessed to the dardine murders obviously investigators are like all right we got our guy you know this is clearly makes sense and you know a lot yeah they're like we got our guy well the problem with tommy lincells and you know with many killers out there who want to take responsibility for kills that they did not commit And with Tommy, his story just kept on changing. So for example, Tommy would talk about how he was 22 years old at the time the Dardine family was killed. And in one version of a story, he met Keith at a truck stop outside Mount Vernon. And then in another story, they met at a pool hall. So that's a big, you know, difference there where you meet. I mean, can't really like get around that. Mm -hmm. That seems very odd that two different places are being reported by him. But apparently the two men hit it off. Keith invited Tommy back to his home for dinner. And he said that Keith and Elaine actually propositioned him to have a threesome with them. Oh, spicy. 
which to the family of Keith and Elaine, this is highly unlikely to impossible. Like they were not the type of people that they knew that would do that. Okay. Well, yeah, maybe from what you thought, but people can have all types of weird sexual things going on behind the scenes that you'd have no idea about. You know, a lot of people don't openly talk about that because they know that they're going to get judged. So they could have been doing that. It's, I think it's pretty common. Even though Elaine's seven months pregnant and. Well, maybe before she got pregnant, they were doing that. a tiny mobile home. I don't know. Their Some people are into are that. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's know. possible. It's definitely it's possible. Definitely possible. Well, apparently this is what happened according to Tommy. And what ended up happening though, is this went really wrong. Apparently he got triggered by his anger around, I guess what he saw at the home. The fact that they're, they shared a bed with their son and that triggered something in him from his past Mm. to the point where he basically went into this blackout mode that he said is where he just would, you know, start killing people and he would not really know what he was doing. He went on to say that during these blackout episodes, as he called it, he would wake up in random places covered in blood, not knowing what he'd done. And over the next few days, the flashes of the murders he had just committed would come back in his head. And he told police that he held Keith at gunpoint and then forced him into his car. He then shot him and castrated him and then dumped his body. He then went back and killed the rest of Keith's family, which if this happened, it didn't make sense why Elaine wouldn't call the police or was she restrained? I mean, it did look like she was restrained to a chair at some point. So I guess it is possible that this is what happened. Apparently the reason why he did it, Tommy said he was very, very angry by this threesome proposition that went to the maximum limit. That's what he said in the new version of his story. Tommy hopped off a freight train near Ina and saw the for sale sign outside the Dardines trailer. He got drunk and then knocked on the door pretending he wanted to buy their home. Keith let him in and then Tommy proceeded to overpower him. He forced Keith to tie up Elaine and Peter and then he made Keith drive his car to the wheat field where Tommy then shot and castrated him. Tommy said he drove the car back to the mobile home where he said he raped Elaine and murdered the family. He then drove the family's car to the police station or bank in Benton and left it there. So a couple things here that police thought were odd about this story. Obviously the fact that Keith would not let a stranger in, even if they wanted to buy his home, Mm -hmm. he would not do that. Plus Elaine wasn't raped. I mean, that's the biggest indicator that Mm -hmm. he's lying. Mm -hmm. She was never raped. There's no signs of that. So likely his story doesn't hold up. Is it possible that, and I know nothing. This is coming from a place of knowing absolutely nothing about this type of thing. But is it possible that because she gave birth that there wouldn't be signs of her being raped? Like, you know. Yeah. How do you even determine that? I always yeah. wonder. I'm like, how did they determine that she was Especially wasn't? after a baby yeah. was born. I feel like it'd be kind of hard to, but I don't know anything. I mean. Well, I think it, guess if there's like DNA or semen or. I guess, but there's so much with the baby that I'm just like, right. I just feel like that would definitely probably make that harder, honestly, because your body obviously like goes through a lot of damage and like rips and stuff while giving Mm. a baby. Is there also a possibility that this is just a false confession? I think there's obviously a possibility. There's always a possibility. And we didn't the case we covered last week had multiple. Yeah. Yeah. It happens so so often. It, it really does. And there was a huge case of false confession like a couple years earlier than this. So it was kind of fresh in their minds that this could be a possibility. Also thought it was interesting that when Tommy was talking to investigators, he told them that he would disassociate when he killed. 
And, you know, some of the details would come back to him and many of the other details of the crimes did not. So it's, it could be a reason for why he, you know, he knew some of the details of the crimes and not others. And he did know a decent amount of information for somebody who was completely uninvolved with this. I think that's very, very difficult to just make up. And, and now like when investigators are interrogating, sometimes they lead you you know, mm-hmm. with questions and kind of lead you, you with the road. answers. So there's a possibility that that's what happened in this case. But I think there's a real possibility we're dealing with an actual serial killer, confirmed serial killer, that this could absolutely be the case where he remembers certain things about what he did, but not others. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely possible the human brain can do that. Yeah. And he did know stuff that the public didn't know. Mm-hmm. So where would he have gotten that information from? Is he just psychic? No, that's a good point. That's a good point. He was also diagnosed with several mental disorders, including bipolar, major depression, and psychosis, which I think is is very important to note. Also, he later on talked about how killing felt like the first time he did cocaine. He was addicted to the rush, and he liked to watch the eyes of his victims fade. Ew. It's so sick. He believed he was setting their souls free. He also said that he killed children so they wouldn't have to live through what he had lived through as a child. Yeah, that's real logical. Yeah, right. And he actually confessed to all this in 2000. And at this time, Joanne, Keith's mother, was convinced that Tommy was a killer. But the more he changed his story, the more she doubted the confession. Also, the police found no physical evidence linking Tommy to the murders. But, I mean, they they didn't DNA test anything. That's what's crazy about this, is that the family's still trying to get the police department to DNA test whatever items they have from these scenes. They should have at least something, test the blood. There's probably going to be somebody else's DNA in there along with keys, especially mm-hmm. and probably from the home as well. I mean, unless this guy was, I mean, he did clean, so maybe he knew how to cover up everything and there's not going to be any DNA there. That's so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is so hard. You have to be like a ninja pretty much. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah, it's very difficult to just With that many no people dead in the home. I don't know. That's hard, but they need a, apparently the police need like a real reason to do it. Like they're, yeah. they need some, you know, I mean, it's expensive to do that. There's, you know, limitations and, you know, regulations that they have to follow with, you know, testing DNA. So they need enough evidence to need to go and do that. And unfortunately, there's just not much evidence here. And in these different versions of stories that Tommy told, there were some other inconsistencies as well. In one story, he talked about how he left Elaine's body in one position and in another, it was something completely different. Um, and when he was flustered, apparently he would develop a stutter, which allowed him to try out several answers before kind of landing on the right one. So I, I don't know. I think it's very tough with him. I think there's a possibility that this is all just really him and, and this is just how he is. And he did do all of this, but I think there's also a possibility that as a serial killer, he's probably just trying to get, you know, as high of a number as he possibly can at this point that he might be, you know, lying about some of this stuff and obviously his stories aren't staying straight and for a long time the dardine family believed that tommy lynn sells was guilty and the community felt the same way one day though when anita key's sister got her mail from her mailbox her newspaper was inside a manila envelope and in the envelope the mail carrier had written her a note that said quote i did not want you frightened when you opened the mailbox there's a picture of that man who killed your brother so obviously a picture of Tommy Lynn cells. And I don't know if somebody was just like being an asshole and sending them a picture of 
of the serial killer or if there's you know something more there maybe he sent it to them or dropped it in their mailbox but with no physical evidence at all the police could not charge tommy for the murders in 2010 joanne wanted to meet tommy actually she wanted to go sit down in prison with him and she believed that talking with him face to face might help her figure out you know if he was guilty or not tommy didn't refuse this meeting but he did question how it could possibly help her and as a result of this the two never met in person and we can go into a whole episode on Tommy Lincells at a later time because there is a lot more to his case. But basically, Tommy Lincells was put to death in Texas in 2014 via lethal injection. And, you know, there's still he's still a suspect in this case and actually on the police binders in the police station listed on the binders as suspect. And the only suspect is Tommy Lincells. So with all that being said, let's consider the different theories here and different other potential suspects. So if it wasn't Tommy, and I think Tommy is a very, very strong suspect in this case. I think there's a lot of, I I think the fact that he knew things that the public didn't know. I mean, how else would he have known these specific things? Obviously, he changed his story, but I I think Tommy definitely, I, I think there could be some significance with some of the things he said. He either knows the person that did it, or maybe he was an accomplice in the murders, or I believe Tommy was definitely capable of committing this Uh, complete annihilation of this family. I mean, again, I keep coming back to this was so skilled, so planned out and it was pulled off, you know, flawlessly. Mm -hmm. He disappeared. He was gone. And it was as if this person had done this a million times before. And that's why I really think that Tommy Lynn, the serial killer is definitely number one suspect, but let's consider some other possibilities here and some other theories. So another theory that was very, very popular with investigators pretty much right off the bat after this happened was this is the 80s and the height of the satanic panic. And in a lot of cases like West Memphis 3, we've talked about that one. And just during this time period, there was an absolute fear of anybody that claimed that they're a Satanist or a witch. um, So misunderstood. You know, people that are involved in in this type of, of life and belief system. And so anytime there was killings that were of children or of, you know, somebody having their genitals mutilated or something like that, oftentimes police would consider this possibility that maybe this was a ritualistic killing of some sort. And perhaps a a group of Satanists or somebody that was Satanist was doing some sort of uh, sick sacrifice or something like that. Well, in this case, actually brought in an individual who was an expert on cults and and the occult and this person completely ruled this out and said there's nothing here that signifies anything involved with the ritualistic killing there's just nothing so they pretty pretty quickly got rid of that idea that this was some type of ritualistic satanic killing another interesting possibility that came forward during the investigation was apparently a young woman who was studying forensic science at the time of the murders was also part of the crime scene investigation team. And she believed that this murder was linked to the mob somehow. And she speculated that Keith may have owed the mob money. He doesn't and really seem like the type that would roll around with the mob though, or like be involved in them in any way. What's he borrowing money for? Yeah. Where's his kid's college fund. Yeah. How is he? Gambling? I don't know. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and Joanne has denied this theory as well. She insisted that Keith was very good with money Mm. and anything extra went into Peter's college fund. (laughs) There you go. There you go. So he would not do that. Another theory that's out there that we've kind of alluded to throughout this is that perhaps Keith had some sort of encounter 
uh, with another man where, you know, he was hiding their relationship of some sort. Maybe they were having an intimate one and maybe it went really bad. And this individual ended up, you know, taking revenge on Keith and, and his family uh, potentially. And I think this is a possibility even with Tommy too, that Tommy may have had some mm-hmm. sort of relationship like he claimed that they met each other at a bar and stuff like there could have been some type of intimate relationship there that just went really, really bad for some reason. Hmm. And that could be another possibility for why, you know, he was worried about a threat. You know, we kept talking about that. Like he clearly had a feeling something bad was going to happen. Yeah, and I, like and I wonder really why. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, I think that there's clearly something was going on. He was afraid of somebody to go to the extent to yeah. move that quickly. He was like, put yeah. the for sale sign up. We're out of here. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. It's it definitely Maybe he didn't want to be outed for something. Right. Maybe he knew that something was going to come to light in this small town. You know, he's That's leader true. of the church band. Yeah. That's, you know, his whole reputation could be completely tarnished if they found out that he was having a relationship with a man, you know, cause yeah, during these times and in this type of town definitely yeah. was not going to be probably accepted. Yeah. So that's definitely a possibility. I think a very strong one too. And obviously the the family denies that completely. They don't believe it, but sometimes you don't really know your family members. I mean, there's always no. a possibility there's, you know, things that they're not telling you about that could be happening. Well, they could feel like they can't tell you that they wouldn't be accepted. Right. Hmm. There's also a possibility that this was just a completely random thing that happened. This mm-hmm. was a freak I don't know, accident in a way. Like somebody just saw the opportunity and just decided to do it. And we don't a have freak any, attack, uh, yeah, a freak attack. Yeah. Freak attack. Yeah. And there's just no idea. It's just some drifter, some random person who will never know who it is. Unless, but to pull it off so cleanly. Yeah. That's I my thing. I highly doubt it wasn't planned in some way. Right. So that's, it's kind of the list of theories. I mean, there's, there's only so much you can really speculate with this one. And I think, I think we've covered pretty much all the yeah. possible scenarios. I mean, Let us know if you think can think of something else that could have happened. But I think that's pretty much what most people think is that it was most likely probably Tommy Lynn sells. I think most people land on that or somebody who was having a personal relationship with. That's what I think too, especially cutting off his genitals that almost screams like they had a sexual relationship. Yeah. And they were angry about it. It doesn't prove it. Right. No, it doesn't. It it definitely would fit the narrative, the story for sure. Absolutely. So after a while though, and investigating pretty thoroughly and chasing down every lead that they got, uh, they case went cold. Yeah. There was just nothing left to investigate. And it's that way to this day. It is. And Keith's mother, Joanne has remained committed to getting justice for mm-hmm. her son mm-hmm. and his family has talked to the sheriff's office almost every day, yeah. uh, to the detective at the time, Mike Anthes, mm-hmm. who left the department in 1994 to, uh, the new detective that they have working on the case, uh, Detective uh, Surge, actually. So she's she's really hopeful that hopefully one day this will be solved and hopefully, you know, they'll get some justice for the Dardine family. I hope she's right. And maybe the police have more than they're even saying. That's always a possibility. Yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, they have binders and binders and binders of yeah. thousands of pages of evidence and stuff, and they are considering DNA testing some of the objects that they have, which I'm like, why, why don't they sit on DNA? Like if you have a cold case, why are you waiting to test DNA? I know. And that's gotta be so frustrating for the family, especially if they're aware of any of it and they're not allowed to talk about some of it. I know it's, it would, I'd be so angry and I, I totally get why families of victims are just so like 
just hate pressure. the system. Like it's yeah. like, it doesn't work. Like, what do you mean you can't test the DNA? I know you think they'd do every single thing that they can. It seems don't. so logical. What are these DNA technicians doing all day? They should be busy around the clock. Like, <laughs> why know. are they, why there's not enough DNA text to run DNA? Like what it, the excuses that we hear is just ridiculous. It's all, it's excuses. That's exactly what it is. It's just like it's laziness. For some they other don't bullshit want to reason. work yeah. harder, figure it out sometimes. Sometimes people. Yeah. I'm not saying all the time. There's definitely good investigators, good cops. There's absolutely good people out there. Obviously cases are getting solved. So there, it yeah. does work. There are people doing their job in solving these cases, but in some of these small towns and just, some, I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen firsthand. Well, they're underfunded, under trained, yeah. no idea what they're doing. And yeah. you know, DNA, what does that stand for? So <laughs> oh my I'm God, ser- let's hope it's not that bad. I'm serious. Well, remember, I mean, yeah. the biggest thing, the, Oh my God. When Josh and I traveled to Mississippi and covered the Christian Andreacchio case, that was very eye-opening at just how how many resources their police department was lacking for a decently large city. Yeah. Town. Yeah, it's pretty you know pretty big for, for Mississippi. Yeah. And they weren't even able to do luminol testing. They were they were u- using YouTube videos to figure out how to luminol test, yeah. dude. That's I mean, what the hell? And as a parent, you're just like I could do this myself probably better than you can. Some of these departments are really, really undertrained. It's bad. It's honestly so frustrating that we won't put our money towards the correct training, whether that's for this type of stuff or training how to help when someone's in a mental health crisis or training when there's a, you know, violent act going on. I feel like it's all about making sure that they have like, they, they have no problem spending thousands and thousands of dollars on like equipment and yeah. having the latest technology yeah. or whatever, so which true. is like obviously important, but I feel like these trainings are just as important. Yeah. I completely agree with that. There needs to be a more diverse training of more yeah. scenarios. I think, I think it's just, everything is getting too mil- militaristic. Like totally. it's the police is like being in the military now and like, mm-hmm your expectation is like, I got to focus on my weaponry and yeah. you know, all of that, as opposed to how about what is actually needed to solve crimes? Mm-hmm. Like that's your job at the end of the day as, as a police officer, as a detective is to solve crimes. Mm-hmm. Crimes are always going to happen, but we need people that can solve them, not create more crimes. Like yeah. it's our system's completely getting fucked up and we're losing track of what the police is there in the first place. And so in this case, it's like, 21 four inch binders of information. And yet we still, this is still a cold, cold mm-hmm. case. And they and are barely any, any info out there planning uh, to re, you know, or to test yeah. DNA on some of the objects they have. Uh, it's being, the case is being handled by Jefferson County detective, captain Scott Burge actually. And he hasn't even talked to the family yet. And from the interviews I saw of him, I don't have a lot of hope. Unfortunately, uh, I think, Maybe they'll test it. Maybe they'll not, but it's been years, 20 years. I mean, DNA, how much DNA is going to be left there? Obviously there's going to be something, but it's like, is it going to be enough to really crack this wide open? I don't know. Yeah. That's a good point. So I don't know. I really, really hope for the Dardine family. They seem like such nice people that they get some answers and some justice for Keith, Ruby, Orlane and Casey and Peter. One thing I had seen in a news report on this case was an interview. I can't remember if it was a brother of Keith or a friend of Keith or someone that was related to Keith was talking about how at this point they really just want to know why they're not even interested in knowing who, I mean, of course they're interested, but their main focus is really why they want to know what this was for. What was the motive was, was Keith into something? Was there a big secret that they didn't know? 
that's looming over their heads. And I can't imagine how that would feel. Yeah, no, I mean, just think about it. Like if you only knew of your family members as, you know, one thing and they're the most sweet, innocent people, like never, never could be involved in anything that should have them end up like this. I mean, I'm sure that's just so hard to wrap your mind around and just think about like, why would these are like the nicest people? Yeah. Like they, as far as we know, they did nothing wrong. They did nothing completely innocent in this case. And yet they, their lives ended in this horrific way. So yeah, I mean, it's gotta be super painful to, to think about this, but hopefully, and we'll put, you know, if you do know anything out there on this case, this case really hasn't been covered. Hasn't seen much TV time. The Oprah show denied him uh, back at, a right. time around this happened and only America's most wanted has covered this, I think. Mm-hmm. And literally there's really not much on YouTube. It's very, very it's so horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And this family needs justice. So we'll, we'll link below Jefferson County Sheriff's office uh, number and contact. If you do have information in this case, definitely submit it. Or, or if you know anything regarding the Dardine family, uh, I'm sure it'd be greatly appreciated. I I'm, I'm definitely going to leave my thoughts with the serial killer, uh, theory and probably Tommy Lynn sells is, was what I'm thinking. I think is so. the person who did this. I think that makes sense or someone else, but yeah. same situation. Yep. So let us know what you think, but that wraps it up for mile higher today. Hopefully you enjoy this episode of the podcast. We'll be back with a Halloween episode next week, right? Halloween's already coming up. So yeah. Yeah. Almost the end of October. Already. We're going to try to wear costumes. Maybe we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. see, we can see get our act see, together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. We never care enough about costumes. I feel like but this year we've got it, even though we have nowhere to go I know. and everything's closed and Halloween's on a Saturday. That sucks so bad. And like nothing's open and we all stay home. Well, we can wear our costumes inside and dance around on camera for you guys. That's wow. what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly around. what they want. Yes. Yeah, full hour of Tell dancing. Tell us what you want from us. You guys miss the dancing from the old days, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you've been around a while, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All so, right. <laughs> until next time, stay safe. And stay woke. know a spot but not just a spot the spot actually with the all-new nissan frontier you know a bunch of them but the key to these great spots being able to reach them in the first place your spot is out there find your frontier in the all-new 2022 nissan frontier with standard 310 horsepower advanced tech and 281 pound foot of torque Most pancake syrups contain artificial flavors, artificial colors, and high fructose corn syrup. But there's an all-natural option free of additives in the same aisle. Real maple syrup from Canada is made from one ingredient. So turn the bottle and check the label. Is your syrup real maple? 100% pure maple, straight from Mother Nature herself. One ingredient, one source, one flavor. PureMapleFromCanada.com